The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by David Waxman, partner at 10110 Ventures. For our audience that aren't familiar with 10110 Ventures, do you mind sharing a little bit of a description, David? Sure. And thanks for having me on the show. It's really great to be here. We are a early stage venture fund based in Los Angeles. We invest in usually around the seed stage, a little bit before, sometimes a little bit after, but but one of the first checks, if not the first check into a company. We're all a little bit techie and we're all founders or former founders, which gives us, a, I think, a bent towards investing in techie founders. We're pretty agnostic to vertical. We think there's a lot of different opportunities across verticals. One, one thing that I want to ha- highlight for our audience about David's background is that he himself has been a software entrepreneur quite a bit. His first job, I, maybe I got this wrong, but your, one of your first jobs was coding for a Japanese software a company. These days, you're now a VC investor, but for our audience that are curious about your background, how did you first get into software? Sure. I mean, technically, my first job was in a candy store when I was 12. <laughs> I didn't last long because I ate the product, but um, <laughs> the coding was, was one of my later jobs. I grew up in Berkeley, in the Berkeley Hills, and um, the closest well, there was nothing commercial I could walk to. If you know the Berkeley Hills, it's sort of, if you're a kid, you can only go to other people's houses or uh, you can't go to a store. But there was one other thing in the Berkeley Hills, which was the Lawrence Hall of Science. And I started hanging out there pretty much every day and was a volunteer and a docent. And it was there that I learned how to program computers. And uh, this was in the late, it was in the late 70s. For for audience that may not be familiar with Berkeley's cultural history, I mean, of course, it's got one of the best universities in the world, UC Berkeley. But like David's describing, there's an awesome Children's Science Museum, Lawrence Hall of Science, that has this crazy view overlooking the San Francisco Bay. Um, I myself grew up very close by and remember taking classes in lasers, <laughs> I think it was. But I, yeah. d- I didn't really get into to programming until quite a bit later, probably high school. Whereas when you were in high school, tell us about your, your first programming job and how you got it. Yeah, sure. So I was when I was at Lawrence Hall of Science, and this was when I was like 10, 12 years old, uh, I was part of this thing called the Friday Project, which was a basically a computer programming club. I met some people there who, uh, some of whom, actually most of whom were older than me, and some of whom took a job at this place called Unison World, which was a company based in Berkeley run by a Korean selling software to Japan. And so we made video games for for the Japanese market, uh, which, by the way, had better they had better resolution and better uh, displays that were more suited to games than microcomputers that most Americans had at the time. Yeah, I was about 15, 16 years old, and uh, was happily programming games. Not not to date yourself that much, but I am curious about the like programming languages that were used, like. Were, were there were there any best practices that people were familiar with at, at that point in time about how to build software, uh, you know, that kind of thing? Well, of course. I mean, the first language I learned, uh, well, the first language I learned was basic, and I think that was what most people back then learned. And then the second language I learned was called BCPL, which is a predecessor to C. Um, it was very much, it was very similar to C, uh, but without pointers. Um, and then I learned C, and at the shop where I worked, there were sort of two halves to it. The the primitives and, you know, for display and animation and things were all written in C. And then the rules of the game, which is where I worked, were written in a language called Fourth, uh, which was a, f- a funny choice. But um, 
but so I did a lot of programming in fourth in those days. And there wasn't a direct path that you took out of high school to, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur in software startups. You, in fact, got your degree in music. Is that right? That's correct. I'm a, I loved programming and it was my hobby. And it was very cool to be able to, you know, make more funny, more money than my friends who were selling pizza uh, or, or doing other jobs that you could get in when you were 15 years old. I, I had a good time being you know highly paid at like what was $15 an hour or something like that but it was never I never thought of it as a career I always thought my my career would be in music uh, which was really my passion and I was fortunate when I went to Berkeley I had these two things going on in my life I really loved music and I really loved computers Uh, and I in the music department was able to get a degree in computer music essentially Um, there was a a mentor (coughs) pardon me uh, there was a, a gentleman, a professor at the school named David Wessel, who was really my mentor. And he had he was in the music department, the computer science department, and the psychology department. So he's a really interesting guy. Uh, but I got my, my degree was out of the music department. And even after college graduation, as I understand it, you did not go into what I would call startups. You, you were in a few research labs. Do you mind yeah, sharing I, I, a little bit about it? Not at all. And I I didn't really know what startups were back then. I grew up in Berkeley, which is, you know, it's very unlikely. If you'd asked me when I was a kid if I would grow up to have a career that had the name capitalist in the title, um, I wouldn't have believed you. I didn't, I didn't know what a venture capitalist was. I didn't know much about the startups. I, I knew that people sold software um, and I knew about, you know, people who made video games and made what to me seemed like outrageous sums, but I didn't really understand uh, how businesses got started and things like that. It was much more of an academic type. Um, And so after graduating from Berkeley, I got a job at a a place in France, uh, which was indeed a research institute called IRCOM, which was a publicly funded research institute focused on computers and music and sound uh, and technology. And, And so we had composers who were coming in to use technology to create mixed medium works to try their hand in sound synthesis and recording and things like that. Um, And I was a a teacher there and part of the research group for several years. So what brought you back to the United States? Uh, So I didn't know that I was going to come back to the United States. I was very happy in France. Uh, But I met a professor from MIT uh, who who had also worked at IRCOM, who was out visiting. And he was... uh, he was and still is at the MIT Media Lab and had a grant uh, from Sega of America to do a computer, a computer game that had music in it. And he had some slots that were sort of um, subsidized for that. And he invited me to come to the Media Lab, which was a, an offer that I hadn't, that I couldn't refuse. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> getting, getting to work on video games in academia. What my, <laughs> this is a total aside, but when I was a senior in college, I was a math major with a CS minor, and my dissertation was on uh, AI for video games. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't go straight into software startups myself, um, but I remember having a lot of joy and a lot of anxiety <laughs> about completing my thesis. But I remember, I mean, I love video games, and I think a large portion of our audience does too. 
What 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 was novel about music and video games that that landed the your research leaders uh, grant perhaps? Well, I think uh, there hadn't been a really successful music video game yet that I'm aware of, that I was aware of, but everybody knew that music. You know, I think Steve Jobs once said that music is the killer app, or someone said it about him. Um, there's people are really passionate about music. What was going through my head was how do I create this experience of music, of, of playing music and writing music, uh, which is so special and unique, and give it to people who didn't necessarily have have a way into that experience. So if you, I don't know if you play music, but if you've ever you know, jammed with friends, there is a kind of communication with people, a, a sort of uh, a connection that you have with the people that you're jamming with, which is unlike any other experience I know of human interaction uh and i wanted to see how you know is there a way to give this to people without having them go through years of training uh, to become musicians um it doesn't replace that obviously but but there was um i think a huge opportunity and and in fact uh my work never left you know sort of the the setting of of mit but uh some other two other gentlemen in my group students who were my contemporaries um were Alex Rogopoulos and Irana Gozi, who founded Harmonix, and they created uh, Rock Band and Guitar Hero, and um, still run it today. Yeah, those. I mean, I think our entire audience is probably familiar with those. <laughs> yeah, those guys are awesome. And now uh, Iran is now a professor at MIT. Nice, nice. I, what what drew you away from academia? What are you working on? music video games sounded like your passion at the time uh yeah so so um let's wind back the clock it was uh 1994 when i was there and um i still hadn't didn't know much about startups and and what was happening what was possible uh but the internet or more precisely the web browser had just come out and it was becoming clear to a bunch of us that wow that was kind of important and interesting and and um, there was a lot to do there uh, but the real catalyst was actually a person I met a guy on an airplane uh, named Nick Graf who was uh, at that time I was in my second year at, at MIT and he was in his second year of Harvard Business School and so we it's it's cliche now I, I didn't know it was a cliche then you know it was like he's a business guy looking for a techie and I was a techie who didn't know anything about business and the two of us started uh, with some other folks at MIT. Uh, we started a company called Firefly, which was actually a music recommendation service based on collaborative filtering technology, which is basically clustering people together to uh, make recommendations. And so technically my first startup was a music-related startup, but that started, that sort of took me off the pure music path and into the startup path for the next, you know, 30 years. And obviously... Uh, 1010 Ventures is not exclusively or, or even directly speculating in music startups, but I am curious, and I think our audience would also be curious about what what music software you are interested in in the present day. I mean, there's, there's a lot of tools out there. Uh, I mean, I couldn't say what are the most popular right now, but uh, do you yourself compose music at all these days? I don't really, unfortunately. I don't. I've, I've, I have a piano which I play from time to time, but I have fallen off the really intense 
um, music making. And as an investor, uh, this is maybe almost embarrassing to say, but I don't really like music tech investments. Um, I think it's I think it's it's a really really tough market, and you have a lot of people who are passionate and doing things that might not be economically interesting, but that are musically interesting, which is also great, but not necessarily a great investment. So, um, you know, and I'm not, sh- I'm not sure these days where I would find an opportunity. I think some of my other interests, like in synthesis, I think, I think it's one area I've looked at a little bit is um, voice synthesis and making, excuse me, realistic, really realistic uh, synthesized voices. Uh, I think that's still an area where there's a lot to do. And when people do it well, it actually makes a huge impact. So, for example, um, you know, Alexa from Amazon seems so much better than many of the other services. And and I think most of that is its responsiveness and the ability to answer more questions and say uh, Siri. But but they've also really nailed the voice part um, and the intonations sound right and it doesn't feel like you're talking to a computer. And I think that that's going to become more and more true as more voice interactions hit the market. And um, the more true it is, the more we'll have these natural conversations with computers that aren't, um, you know, that, that feel natural. Totally. I, I would say that there's definitely some irony to you and I recording a conversation at this moment because I, I see there being a ton of interesting things on the horizon when it comes to uh, editing and post-production of uh, content like audio content or audio plus video. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I've seen demoed recently that there's a lot of hype about, obviously there's deep fakes with videos, but there's also uh, tools that like Adobe has made, and maybe I'll include a link in the show notes where you can edit text and synthesize video like you're describing. Mm-hmm. And think of, thinking about the opportunities for editing and producing podcasts, you can produce some pretty incredible uh, you know, text-to-voice content that maybe, uh, maybe we'll have Barack Obama on the show at some point. I'm not sure. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, I think there's two things going on there. The, the deep fake thing scares the shit out of me. And we, can, we can talk about that separately. But, uh, but I think... I think uh, like in a similar way to what I was thinking back way back in you know at MIT in the in the mid '90s, like making creation easier for people is has been a thread that's really worked for the last you know couple of decades, and I think I think that that's still a rich market, and I've seen my you know my kids uh, use Musically and and other fo- and other apps like that. I think to make video editing more easy, to make audio editing more easy or more automated, I, th- I think there's still probably a lot to do there. Yeah, I mean, arguably, and, and maybe not arguably, like Instagram and Snapchat both, I think their their major innovations are in relation to making it easier to produce content. And I mean, yeah. maybe you could argue maybe that's the phone and not <laughs> not Instagram or Snapchat. But yeah, the, the face filters, the... Uh, ease of pulling in third-party content, the the tools for pulling in third-party content, like searchable animated GIFs and that sort of thing are, are super mind-blowing. But in terms of the, the, the first startup that you worked on, I know you mentioned earlier about it really not being about producing music content, but rather 
music discovery and about collaborative filtering. For audience that aren't familiar with collaborative filtering, maybe not the math of it, but the the value of it. What 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 was that first startup you worked on? Sure, um, collaborative filtering is a, is a pretty simple idea. I think it was uh, invented in the '70s as an algorithm, but I but uh, until uh, I, one of my partners uh, or a couple of my partners at MIT put it out on first an email and then on the web, it hadn't really been implemented. Um, but basically collaborative filtering is is the idea that people who like similar things uh, are have some commonality in taste and might like each other's things. So for example, if you and I both like uh, Mozart, Charlie Parker, and the Smashing Pumpkins, um, and you've never heard of Tupac, but I like Tupac, It's there's a, a chance that you might like Tupac too. Uh, and that's even though those I purposely picked a bunch of genres that are not related at all. Um, th- we, you know, you and I can be sort of taste neighbors. And if you get a big enough group and you cluster enough people together, um, these sort of uh, serendipitous finds uh, are, are can be used as recommendations. And um, and we found that that was was extremely effective. We learned a lot about you know other things that happen when you have this technology like feedback loops and and what have you but um the the other thing that we discovered that was really neat uh was that people wanted to relate to their taste neighbors so you know you can run this algorithm you know as as many companies do sort of in the background and you just the only output is uh is a recommendation but you can also as we did at, at firefly um let people know you know, who some of their neighbors are with consent and all that stuff. And we had, so what what started as really a music recommendation service, and we also did books and websites and, and movies eventually, became also a very social service um, where people were having chat rooms and, and we had a lot of social f- features so that people could talk once they've, once they'd found people who, who had similar tastes, which if you think about it is pretty similar to how things work in in real life when you make friends you start talking about books and movies and and things that you have in common definitely definitely i'm curious you mentioned feedback loops um mm-hmm. what, what what are you referring to there so what i'm referring to is that uh when you have like a, a bestseller list or a top 10 list um that is self-reinforcing right you're on a list uh, so people see you on the list and then they buy you and then you're higher on the list. And so you can get into, in recommendations, you get a similar thing where, um, if I keep recommending, um, Tupac, uh, and then more people keep listening to that and recommending it, that Tupac will bubble up, uh, maybe at a, at a faster pace. Um, well, at, at a very fast pace, I should say. So independent of its merits, it's just being seen more, so it's seen even more. Yeah, I, I was going to say that, except I can't diss the merits of Tupac. So, uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> Independent of his merits, maybe. So independent of, of merit, yeah. You have these these uh, reinforcing you know, outputs where it says, okay, you should like this, and some people like it, and then the system says, okay, more people, he likes it too, so I should recommend it to the next person. And so, yeah. how, how did how did that dynamic that you observed at Firefly? Uh, why why was that particularly notable? Was it was there some element of the product that that 
discovering that uh, led to a new feature or? Uh... Well, I think people, basically one answer is to throw in a little bit of noise to kind of dampen that feature a little bit so you don't get these just like rise to the top phenomena like like would naturally occur. Um, and having experienced that uh, at Firefly, I sort of see it everywhere now <laughs> still. I see it uh, uh, when I look around at lists of popular things and things that are recommended to me. And um, I think that that's uh, that like if if you abstract that a little bit, it's it's actually a real problem that people um, people's own beliefs and own tastes are kind of reinforced, and we get even more isolated because computers are telling us to. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I mean, I think literally every single member of our audience can probably imagine how who they choose to curate their Twitter feed with, maybe uh, what you know subreddits they might subscribe to translates to what their information pipeline looks like, what their information intake looks like. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that part has been pretty incredible to watch in political sphere in the U.S. and probably globally, but uh, that that aspect of the news as, as, a, as a product is pretty mind-blowing. Like, uh, I, I realize we're getting off topic, off topic yeah, of software, cool. but... Uh, Collaborative filtering is such an interesting problem. I mean, another thing we, we could probably highlight for our audience about where this saw huge is seeing huge successes on uh, content uh, businesses like Netflix. Netflix had their million dollar Netflix prize. Mm -hmm. uh, for audience that aren't familiar, Netflix uh, offered up a million dollars to the to the individual or team who could come up with the highest scoring, uh, what amounts to collaborative filtering technique for recommending movies to people. Uh, I'm sure that there, it still is in use in some form within Netflix, but Spotify, Pandora, all these content discovery platforms now are built on what you, you guys worked on or related to what you guys worked on at Firefly. Yeah, I, mean, I would hope that they're a lot more advanced and they've tweaked a lot of things since, you know, since we were working on it, but it it's remains one of the most important problems and it keeps getting more important that uh, we just, there's more and more and more stuff out there and more points of view to listen to and more news and more music. And, and uh, we, ha everybody has a discovery problem. Like if you go onto to Netflix or any of those, those sites that you mentioned, um, finding stuff you want to listen to is the, is the big problem. Separate of the, the big problems of content discovery, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of the, the uh, existential problems that exist for software startups. And I know you provide a lot of mentoring to the teams that are within your portfolio at 10110. Uh, what, are, what are some of the more memorable types of problems that a startup might encounter? Oh, that's a, a big gear shift. Okay. Um, there's certainly some problems that are, well, first of all, every startup has problems. And I think that's, there's a problem uh, or, or an issue between the sort of public face and the, and what's really behind the scenes. You know, when we talk about startups, we talk about them, their hockey stick growth or their, um, you know, amazing achievements. And people say, oh yeah, it's really hard, but they don't, I don't think they get, I'm not sure everybody gets that every single startup is a roller coaster and a real like 
stomach churning one, even the ones that do great. Um, they're, you know, I guess these mythical companies that, that launch just take off and get bought early on where, where they don't have a big turn of the roller coaster, but I haven't met one of those yet. Um, so really getting comfortable with that is something that, you know, is, is something that we have to talk to the startups about. And it's different with first time founders versus second time founders, but it, it's also important that employees who join a startup realize what they're getting into and what they're getting into is, you know, something that's going to be kind of a wild ride. Um, uh, I, there are, there are definitely things that, that we see from startup to startup. One, one issue that I see a lot is that as startups grow, um, the needs of the company change in terms of who's on the team. So when you're early and you're three people or five people or, you know, 10 people even, what you need is a lot of generalists. Like everybody needs to be able to do pretty much everything. And that's, you know, of course, the software engineers are going to write the code and the marketers are going to do the marketing. But But there needs to be this spirit of like, if there's a ball about to fall, somebody dives for it, right? And also in those situations, you tend to have very, very open communication about it. Everybody knows what's going on because you're all sitting in the same room or having the same stand-ups. Uh, as a startup grows, you need you start to need more specialists. So let's say uh, you know someone's been handle, handling marketing and sales and uh, you know, you get to a point where you really want to get a pro marketer to do, you know, who's had plenty of experience in marketing. Um, and maybe they go off and do sales for a while, but then eventually you need someone who's a real pro in sales. And sometimes the earliest employees, when you get to a certain point, are no longer, you know, they sort of hand off these hats to the to people who are real specialists and they find themselves without a hat. Um, and that could be really, really tough because those people are often also like the soul of the company. They were there from the beginning. Um, and, uh, and so making room for them and figuring out how to make that path work out is, is super important. And so, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's, you know, a person's time in a company, they, they just won't find themselves with something really useful to do that they can contribute. Um, and, you know, it's important to, to kind of set that up and, and, part with respect um sometimes if if you know if egos allow that person can you know maybe who's been sort of holding down the fort in a certain area um can uh, is willing to have someone be hired over them and who knows more about that particular area and, and become an expert um but but i've seen this at, at most startups uh that that i've worked with that that there is this transition somewhere between you know somewhere sub 50 people uh where the earliest employees who are really really valuable um become a little bit can become disenfranchised i i realize that that might seem like a obvious thing that people can recognize happening to themselves but are there particular are there particular indications or signs that maybe member, members of our audience can think about or reflect on when they think about their job at a, at a startup that might be reflective that either one, they're in over the, their depth and they, they need somebody hired in over them, 
I think that's such a hard, uh, self-defeating decision to acquiesce to. Uh, but but what, what types of things can, can our audience maybe recognize about their situation, maybe not even themselves, but, but coworkers of theirs, where uh, p- politically maybe or uh, skills-wise something has to change? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think people need to come forward and say, I'm in over my head. I mean, if you are in over <laughs> your head and you feel like that, you should definitely say it, right? But, but you know, there is a real value to being able to hold down a bunch of things and, and do them well uh, early on when, when sort of everybody's a generalist. I think having the humility, and it's, it's easy to say and hard to do, to, to say, okay, I'm I'm doing my best at this, but there's this person over there who's really, really good and has been doing this. This is their, this is my first time doing it. This will be their fifth time doing it. You know, I, I really like this area and I want to learn more about it. So I'm happy to have them become my mentor, right? Uh, once again, easy to say, hard to do with, with real egos. Um, yeah, I, I realize and, I, didn't, I didn't phrase the question too clearly. So let, let me try and think of a way to phrase it better. Maybe... You gave an example of sales. You gave an example of um, people having more repetitions of experience mm-hmm. uh, that might make them more qualified or skilled in a way. Uh, I guess. Guess. I guess. Where Where have you seen people hit their limits in this way? Uh, maybe that would be helpful. You mean where in different in, parts of a company? Yeah, or, or just generically, like, is it always skill that, or, or, um, oh, no, sometimes it's like the ability to manage. Like, a lot of people sort of imagine a trajectory where they're an individual contributor, um, and they do more and more, and then they start to take on management, and, and that grows. And, uh, not everybody's cut out to be a manager, and it's a skill, and it needs to be learned, uh, as well as, you know, it's good to have some aptitude for it. But, uh, I th- I think people need to, you know, if you want to become a manager, you really need to commit to like to becoming a manager and not just think that ticking off time as a great individual contributor will get you there. Um, you have to learn how to manage, and and I think you need to ask your, uh, you know, find a path within the company and whoever you need to talk to and however you need to to arrange it to go to your manager and say like. Hey, I want to learn how to manage people. So, um, you know, what training can I have? What what uh, path can we make? You know, can I start? What do I need to do to be able to get in a position to manage a couple people to start it out? And um, and I think that that's that's the way to that's some some place where people sometimes get stuck, where they think, well, I've I've been here two years, therefore I should be. A manager and I've been a manager for two years therefore I should be a director or whatever um, those those steps are um, they are signs of achievement but they but you have to actually do the the part where you learn how to do the job yeah I, th- I think that's a hu- huge subject area is like title inflation and I think it's a, a difficult one at smaller companies for sure due to the nature of uh, uh, compensation at smaller companies too is that a lot of people that I know kind of uh, expect title inflation at smaller companies in lieu of maybe compensation 
like concrete cash or, or hard stock equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I've observed it myself. Uh, totally agreed. <laughs> I feel like that's a whole whole episode in and of itself. Yeah, well, I actually wrote a, a piece on, which is still up on Medium, about tidal inflation because I think it's really insidious, right? It's It feels like cheap currency when you're a startup with limited funds and resources. Um, it's It feels like cheap currency to say, okay, you can be a VP. Um, but you're not really a VP, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I see this all the time with companies that come present to us uh very young companies where it's like okay what do y'all do well i'm the ceo he's the cfo he's the cto she's the cpo you know and you have all these c-level execs and that's the whole team well that that's great but those people aren't probably all going to be the c-level execs of the future and i i think if you start to give out titles like that um because they're you know, they feel like they're free because they don't cost money and they don't cost equity. You still have to pay for them down the road when when people need to get reset to where they really belong and what they're really capable of doing. Unfortunately, we've run up against hard time limits. We'll include links in the show notes to David's Medium article about titles and startups, as well as 10110 Ventures. David, thanks for coming on. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.